Heavenly Father, we just want to thank you once again for your blessings in our lives, for your safety and protection. We ask now that you would take each part of this service and use it to your glory and your praise. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Right. As we are going through our series... We are looking for characteristics, uh, what has often been called a distinctive as a noun uh, rather than an adjective, and, and it is used that way on occasion. It's a very rare usage of the word, and uh, what we are doing is just making an acrostic of the word Baptist, and so we're, we're looking for things right now in the Scriptures that define what a true church was according to the Bible. Uh, I remember several years ago, uh, someone said, seeking to be, uh, and they had 21st written on the thing and crossed out, and then just first century Christianity. And... uh, uh, and I do admire that thought, but that's something we can't do. Because we have cell phones and computers and credit cards. And I really like credit cards because they can take the whole crew down to the deli and everybody can order what they want. And I give them one little piece of plastic and everybody eats lunch. I, I like that. Um, you can't do that in the first century. And so, what we're, we're doing, and, and here's part of the problem. How many of you have ever been to Lancaster County, Pennsylvania, or to Amish country? And uh, it, it is beautiful. Uh, I love looking over the rolling hills and not seeing a telephone pole. I just, that's what the country, that's what that land looked like in 1828 or 1820s. And that is where the Amish people basically drew the line. And that's what they behave and they dress like. They didn't have tractors. And, uh, well, that's kind of gross, but remember one time we were down there and there was a little boy cleaning out the barn. And, uh, of course, they had horses, big drought horses in the barn, and he was getting rid of the nasty stuff and, and uh, shoveling it out. And I see him there in his, uh, standing in the stuff. And, and as we were driving by, I happened to look, and there were his boots sitting up on the side there. And I'm going, you know something? I'm glad that we have tractors. I'm glad that we don't do, have to do that. But that's what they did in 1820s. You, you did not take your leather boots and put them in the stuff that the horses left behind in the stalls because then... Every time it rained until you got a new pair, that's what you would smell. Because it goes into the leather and it never, ever comes out. 
You see, we have a problem when we pick a date. We have a problem when we pick certain customs. We have a problem, I mean, the, the whole argument about Islam and the burqa and the dress and all of that is because some guy named Muhammad, who lived about uh, late 500s, early 600s A.D., decided that that was the way people should dress. And because he made a rule that nothing he said could ever be changed as long as it was in perpetuity. So we have people living in the 21st century dressing as if they were in the 6th century. Does that make you more spiritual? You see, I've often said the biblical issue is modesty. Now, what is modesty about, ladies and men? It's about not drawing attention to yourself. Is that not modesty, a working definition of modesty, as simple as we can get it? Everybody still together? So, ladies, if you put a full burqa on and you have two little slots here for eyes, and you go walking down 30th Avenue, what is everybody in their right mind doing at you? Staring. Are you modest? No, because you're drawing attention to yourself. The same thing with the Amish people. If you've ever, uh, I always loved it. You go into a bus terminal and it's full of Amish people. They don't have cars. They're against cars, but they'll ride, they'll take the Greyhound. Uh, as someone said, they'll pound the hound almost anywhere. Uh, Wait a minute, what are we doing? Again, we're drawing attention to ourselves. That's not the goal. The goal is to get people to listen to Christ. Because that's what went on in the first century. Can we say amen to that? And you see, these people practiced what we call believer's baptism. And since that begins with a B and is double B, we put that as the B in Baptist, the authority of Scripture, that this book is the final authority, that we go nowhere else. There's no court of appeals. There is no split decisions when it comes to the Bible. And by the way... If that's your interpretation, I want to challenge you, you have the wrong one. Because you can't own an interpretation. That's not what God ever meant the Bible to do. Someone says, well, you Baptists, you think you're the only ones right. But here's what we've been trying to do these last several weeks, is show you that what we believe is what is simply printed in this book. You know, no other religion can do that. You cannot defend the papacy, confession, the mass. You cannot defend those things using a Bible because they're not here. 
And, and people want to say, well, we, we believe in the simplest form of Christianity. And, and they talk about all of the miracles and speaking in tongues that happened in the first century. And say, see there, you don't speak in tongues, but we do. We're more first century than you are. Well, wait, wait a minute. We've been over this in Sunday school so many times. What was the purpose of speaking in tongues? It was to prove to the Jewish people that the Holy Spirit was living in those that profess faith in Jesus Christ alone, not the temple sacrifices anymore. God did not do away with the temple sacrifices. Jesus fulfilled every one of them. And the Jewish people then put that testimony down and we have it in the Bible. Once it's been proved, to reprove it again is to is not to add faith, but to question it, is it not? And so we take the testimony that's in that's what we mean by the authority of Scripture. And then we talk about the priesthood of the believer. And if you want to know the single truth, the single thing that has made America free and America great, it is the biblical doctrine of the priesthood of the believer. It's known politically as freedom of conscience or self-determination. Thomas Jefferson, writing the Declaration of Independence, coined it this way. The pursuit of happiness. That's what he meant by that statement. Was the right to determine your own life, that you were not responsible to government to find your job and your life. You were not responsible to the king. You were not responsible to the church. You're responsible directly to God. You see, Thomas Jefferson hated organized religion to the point that if we believe most of what he wrote, he missed eternity. He was not against God as much as he was the state-run church or the church-run state. It was not Thomas Jefferson that coined the phrase separation of church and state. It was the Connecticut Baptist writing to Mr. Jefferson that coined that phrase. You see, the priesthood of the believer means I'm directly responsible to God. I am free from enslavement. But if I follow the Bible... Won't I have some things in common with other people who follow the Bible? Well, if they're following the same Bible, there ought to be some commonality. There ought to be some congruence, if you like mathematics. And and that's why we talk about two officers and two ordinances. Where do we get those ideas from? That's because they're printed in the Bible. 
and we talk about the independent, the independent local churches, free. Again, these things overlap uh, uh, somewhat, but they they have different points here. That there's no denominational hierarchy. There is no man that a church answers to other than Jesus Christ. And tonight, uh, really, this ought to be the first, but since Baptist doesn't start with an S, uh, it comes almost at the end. And that's salvation by grace. And, and we're not going to spend a, a great deal of time um, going over this, except for the fact that let's just look at Ephesians chapter 2, 8, 9, and 10. If you do not have these verses memorized, you need to. You, you need to know these verses. It says, For by grace are ye saved through faith. And that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. So, how many of you remember going to a church before you came here, before you became a member of of a Baptist church, and in that church, they gave you a pathway to salvation. They gave you things that you had to do in order to get enough, quote-unquote, points with God, if you want to look at it in that way, to, to be good enough. And, and the question I like to ask people is, how good is good? How many of you have heard the phrase, Bill Clinton was a good president? If you listen to the news media, you've heard that phrase. Uh, and and uh, that's what... Mrs. Clinton is banking on to propel her into the White House that Bill Clinton was a good president. Now, how many of you believe that? Nobody better put their hand up. Because he was a very evil man. According to this book. Would anybody want to debate that with me? I think I win. I like to... little sarcasm once in a while. How many of you have seen Bill Clinton's autobiography? They misspelled the title. There's an F in the second word. He has L-I-F-E. If you just take out the F, it's, it's a very true account. My lie. And uh, anybody going to argue that point? That that's a sad thing, and yet people say, "Oh, good, good, good." Wait a minute. Who is good? 
Jesus said, there's only one. That's God. You see, that's why salvation has to be by grace. Because if you could earn your salvation, if somehow you could do something that would merit God giving you salvation, then you would deserve to be called good, would you not? And that word is reserved only for God. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. How many of you have ever tried to witness to somebody and said, What you're trying to tell me is that everybody is going to hell except a few people who believe on Jesus? How many of you have had somebody do that to you? I have. And I say, yeah, that's exactly what I'm telling you. Not because it's my opinion. But because... That's what Jesus said. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father, but by me. And how many of you know what the next question is? Well, what about the aborigines? 3,000 years of history, and they've had no outside contact. And my first question is, oh, so you've been there. Well, what do you, what do you mean? Uh, you're 3,000 years old and you can verify 3,000 years of history. Well, that's what National Pornograph... I mean, Geographic says. I don't trust anything National Geographic says, even if there's a picture there. Because these people have an agenda. They're not. They're like the History Channel. It's not true. It promotes an agenda. No one can make that statement. But how many of you know the story of the harlot Rahab at Jericho? God had condemned all of the Canaanites to death. So how come Rahab and her entire family were saved? For by grace, through faith. Where did Moses' father-in-law come from? The priest of Midian who offered sacrifices to the Most High God. Listen. You get saved. By God's grace, through faith in His Word. 99% of every religion out there does not believe that. They want to give you something to do. You see, salvation is not... A process. Now let me ask you a question. 
How many people here have been saved over 25 years? Would you just raise your hand if you've been saved over 25 years? Okay, we got a few of us here. Are you closer to God today than you were 25 years ago? How many would say amen to that? Amen? Well, you grow in Christ. Just like my children grow. But they're not more of my children because they're grown up. In fact, when they get to a certain point, I have less control. Because they're adults and make some of their own decisions. Does that mean God has less control over older Christians? No. What it means is he has more control. Because we're making decisions, we should grow into making decisions based on the Bible. Learn to think and behave biblically. But it all starts with being born again. It's not a process It's an event. Christian growth is a process. Salvation happens at a moment in time. That moment that you put faith and trust in Jesus Christ, not of works, lest any man should boast, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to His mercy. That's Titus chapter 3 and verse 8. Jesus told Nicodemus, Ye must be born again. The Philippian jailer said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? He said, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. If you want to know, and you probably do by now, why those words are up there. It's because I want every person that walks into this auditorium to go. It is finished. What's he talking about? The works that were necessary for your salvation were finished by Jesus Christ on the cross. Isn't it amazing that 90% of all religion is trying to finish what Jesus claims to have already done? That's tragic. And you see, this takes us to the second point tonight. And this is what we mean by the Baptist distinctive salvation by grace. It is what we call a regenerative church membership. You see... When you join the Catholic Church, for instance, how do you do that? Well, when you're a baby, your parents take you in and they sprinkle water on your head and you become a part of the Catholic Church. Then later on, you're supposed to confirm that. And then after that, you're supposed to partake of the sacramental system And when it comes time to die, the last thing that's supposed to happen is the priest is supposed to bless you and forgive your sins one more time so you can go to purgatory 
and finish paying for what you didn't pay for in this life. Now, that's a pretty great system if it depends on you, because there's lots of options there. It's not too hard to figure out that somebody with some very serious reasoning power begin to look at the Bible and look at what was practiced and put things together in order to benefit those who participate the most in the system. Are, are we together on that? Whereas the Bible's completely different. And I, I've had people argue with me and say, well, listen, if I believe what you believe, that I was eternally secure and I couldn't lose. All I had to do is pray a prayer and ask Jesus to save me. I'd go out and do everything under the sun after I'm saved because I know I can't lose my salvation. How many of you know what the Bible says about someone like that? It says you never had faith in Jesus in the first place. Because faith doesn't promote that kind of thought process. Faith promotes a moving closer to Jesus. Amen? We still all together? And so, um, John and Charles Wesley, the founders of the Methodist religion, if you will read their writings and their testimony, they were appalled at their church, which was the Anglican or the Church of England. Uh, there's a little thing called the Revolution, had a lot of ill feelings here with the colonies in England, and so they began to call it the Anglican Church rather than the Church of England uh, to keep from reopening the old war wounds and things like that from the American Revolution. But John and Charles Wesley said, nearly everyone in the Anglican church is unsaved. In fact, they were ministers in the Anglican church and had memorized many passages of the Bible and were unsaved. It wasn't until they met the Moravians. And by the way, do not, ladies, if you have children, do not read Susanna Wesley's Rules for Raising Children. She did all those things unsaved. That she was led to the Lord by her sons in her old age. So those rules were developed by a lady who was a wonderful lady. But they're not based on the Bible. Some of them have common sense. Some of them have no sense at all. Stick with your Bible. Amen? You see, does it make any sense that Jesus' church was full of people who were going to hell? And it took two men who met a Baptist group, the Moravians were Anabaptists, left over from the Middle Ages, 
uh, still functioning that way in in uh, Germany, and they got led to the Lord by these Moravians, and and they got a heart that was burdened for their dead, unsaved church. Does that make sense to anybody here? Why would we try to save a dead, unsaved church when we could leave a dead, unsaved church and join a church that already preaches and teaches Jesus Christ? See, I was raised in what was known as a non-denominational church. They, they, we were very proud of the fact that we do not adhere to any group. We are our own thing. And what that did was that put us in a group of churches, most of which spoke in tongues and had visions and all kinds of things. And the people in the church said, that's not who we are. We believe in the authority of Scripture, not in the authority of people. And we went through several pastors in some very troublous time, and a pastor named Shelton Smith came in, and he began to lead the church into reorganizing as a Baptist church. And if you go there today, they'll tell you it's an independent Baptist church. You see, when I was a student in Bible college, those things were still happening I wasn't a part of the church anymore. And I had to answer a question, and the only way I know how to put it is, do I have a right to start my own church when Jesus already started his? The answer is no. Why can't I join his church? And you see... This church demands evidence of a salvation relationship with God before we allow you to get baptized. Now, we've had some people over the years that have given a good, solid testimony of salvation. And after several years of being here under the preaching, they've said, you know, Pastor Montoro, I'm not sure I'm saved. We're not here to scare you or talk you out of your salvation. But Jesus said there are many people that have false profession of faith. You know, the answer for that is under the preaching of the Word of God. Repeatedly. As it chips away at the layers of deception and self-deception until our faith can be in Jesus Alone, Can we say amen to that? And so, this tells us that there are certain things that we just can't accept. One is what we call baptismal regeneration. That somehow your baptism has some special grace-giving quality that gives you salvation. Uh, years ago, we had a guy walk in. He said, do you baptize in Jesus' name? And I had a kind of an idea when he asked that question where he's going. I said, of course we do. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. 
No, that's not in Jesus' name. I said, since when? That's what the Bible says. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. How can you improve on the Bible? Well, that's not what the Bible says. No, I said, I know where you're coming from now. I said, you're a Campbellite. He said, no, I am not. I don't even know what a Campbellite is. I said, well, it has nothing to do with the soup company, by the way. Um, But there was a man named Alexander Campbell who was a defrocked, or he was kicked out of the Presbyterian church. And he decided to go visit the Baptist for a while. But he found out that the Baptist wouldn't have him. And so he started his own church and he called it the Disciples of Christ. And he taught that unless you mix your faith with the water of the baptistry pool, you have no hope of eternal life. And the simple question is, if you mix your faith with anything... It no longer qualifies as a biblical faith. Can we say amen to that? You see, the reasoning is this. In Romans chapter 6, it says, let's, let's look there very quickly. Try to do this in the next moment or two here. Romans chapter 6. Verse 3 says, Know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death? Therefore we are buried with him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been planted together in the likeness of his death, we shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. Now, if you'll take that passage all by itself, it would almost seem that baptism is what makes you a part of Jesus' death. And I would say... Amen, because I believe my Bible. But let's go back to the doctrine of baptism. What did John say? He said, there cometh one after me. He's going to baptize with the Holy Ghost and with fire. Amen? And we know what the baptism of fire is. That's the lake of fire, eternal damnation. And and so the baptism of the Holy Ghost would then be salvation. It's just that simple. And what Paul is describing here is the work of the Holy Ghost at the moment someone puts their faith in Jesus Christ. Not when you're immersed in water. Now, should you if you're truly saved, should you be baptized? Absolutely. You have no excuse 
not to be biblically baptized after you're saved. But the water does not put you into a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. It's just simply the testimony of your salvation. That's why we do not baptize babies. Because water does not give you grace. It makes you wet. Amen? And so, most religions offer salvation by works or money. And when you need to pay for a new roof and all those renovations... Sometimes it's tempting to think about salvation by money. Amen. No, God has provided everything we need by the willing gifts of people. Not one bit of coercion. You know why? Because love is a whole lot better motivator than fear. You see, that's why we reject a works-based salvation. How many of you like theological terms? Pelagianism. That's what a works-based salvation is. Because there's a guy named Pelagius. And they debated over this for several centuries. And the Roman Catholic organization finally came up in the Council of Trent and said, Salvation is a semi-Pelagian relationship with God. Meaning that it's part of grace and part of works. You tell me which part. No. It's all of grace. But see, there's this guy named Arminius who came up with this idea that everybody's going to be saved. Because God is a God of love and He couldn't send anybody to hell and God will save everybody. Well, wait a minute. What do we do with people who don't want to be saved? How many of you have met somebody who just doesn't want Jesus, doesn't want to be saved no matter what? Whether they're holding on to their religion, their tradition, whether they don't care, whether they think somehow... God is going to take something away from them that, and make their life miserable. Man, if I get saved, I'll have to live like you do, Pastor. That's not for me. Well, listen, I'm not the standard of Christianity. Jesus is. That's why we're all poor in spirit. Amen? And so as we look here... Then we have the last one, and we'll be closing very quickly. Special salvation. I love this one. You see, I, I have an ongoing joke. There was a, can't remember where it was, and someone said, you know, Brother Montoro, you're, you're really special. I, I just can't believe some of the things that have gone on in your ministry. I said, yeah, I left my helmet at home. How many know what that means? Few of you do. You see, when I was a kid, if you had seizures, they and they still do this. They put a helmet 
over you that was taped on, strapped on in case you had a seizure so you wouldn't bang your head and die. Uh, and and uh, the term when I was a kid was special people. And uh, so that's, that's always been my joke. It's crazy all they call you. No, uh, absolutely not. Uh, but here's the deal is we have certain people out there that believe that they're special and that they'll get salvation because they're a part of this special group. Uh, the largest of the special groups is Calvinism. Uh, they, they believe they're elect. But the only problem is they've been thinking about this for the last 500 years and the new Calvinists, the Calvinists that are alive today, have come to a conclusion that nobody can know whether they're elect or not because it's all of God and you have nothing to do with it. So nobody can know whether they're elect. See, you're eternally secure, but you can't know it till after you die. Doesn't that strangely sound like the other people who say, well, you just do the best you can and God understands what kind of hope is in that relation, kind of relationship with God? Another extreme. How, do you, how many of you remember Mr. Applewaite and the purple bandanas in the plastic bags? You see, he was a very special man when he was off his meds. And he had a group of people that followed him and he was teaching that the spaceship was hovering in the right place. And on a certain day, he and I believe eight other of his followers put plastic bags over their heads, tied them with a purple bandana, and committed suicide together. Because they were going to be beamed up into a special organization. Buddhism comes under this category. Uh, one Buddhist wrote this, that Jesus was an initiate of the mysteries of the universe to the second level. But, of course, Buddha was of the eighth. You see, if it's special, then what do the rest of us do? What does, for God so loved the world? I had a preacher once say, I know what that means, for God so loved the elect. Well, how do you get E-L-E-C-T out of W-O-R-L-D? Not even an accountant, unless they work for Congress, uh, could, uh, could manage something like that. You see, what we're trying to do here tonight is not pat ourselves on the back and say, we're so smart and we're this. No, actually, we're not very smart because we're not special people. We're part of whosoever will. And the Bible says, if you'll believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, He'll save you. You see, he said, except ye be converted and become as little children, ye shall in no wise enter into the kingdom of God. You see, that's the problem with Calvinism is you have to be smart to be a Calvinist. That's why I'll never be one, because I'm not smart. 
I don't want to be smart. I don't want to grasp all of the eternal nothingness of sophistry. You know what I'd like to know? I'd like to know a little more about how much Jesus loved me and how that love is supposed to work through me when people do very frustrating things. How many else of you have that problem? Am I the only one? Okay, I see some hands going. I got... Yeah. At least we're together, right? So one hand go up. But listen, we're all in that boat, are we not? We've got to learn how to be more like Jesus. Starts when you get saved. You see, salvation by grace gives me so much freedom because I'm not earning my salvation. I'm not losing my salvation. I have a relationship with Jesus that won't go away. You know, my father died when I was 14 years old. But I knew one thing about my dad. That he loved me. I also knew another thing about my dad. I'd better listen to what he said. The consequences were just not pleasant. You know, my dad taught me a little bit about God in treating me that way. That's one of the reasons why we have so much problem relating to God today. Is because people don't understand that part of a father's duties is to say no and mean it. God made a place called hell for people who spit on the cross of Jesus Christ, who refused to accept His payment, who read this Bible and said, that's not good enough for me, I want something more. If you want to be a Baptist, you can't do that. You've got to read what the Bible says. Say, that's all I need. I'm not going to try to understand all those other things. I'm just going to believe what the Bible says. The Bible says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. And all God's people said, Heavenly Father, we thank you for our time together tonight. And Lord, this is familiar ground for most of us here. Yet, Lord, even on a Thursday night, there's a very good opportunity, a very good possibility that someone here tonight has never settled the issue of their eternity. Lord, we pray that you would open their eyes to understand that their eternity was settled by the finished work of Jesus on the cross. Their death 
was paid for by his death. And our life is lived by the power of his life. Lord, help us to live in the joy of our salvation each and every day. In Jesus' name we pray. And before we finish that prayer, we'll just have the piano play.